Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. So many things to talk about on today's No Restraint podcast. I'm going to try and stay focused on one or two subjects, but it's really difficult considering everything that's going on around me and around you. The University of North Carolina announced recently that applicants for admission, or even if they just wanted to be employed by the university, no longer had to submit personal diversity, equity, and inclusion statements as a condition of being admitted or of being hired. Texas A&M University and the University of Houston also have similar policies that they just announced. They're removing the DEI statements, which had been likened to like woke loyalty oaths from their hiring procedures. In Des Moines, the Iowa legislature is weighing a bill to curb spending on DEI mandates at all of the state's public universities. And at the new College of Florida, the Board of Trustees has ended mandated diversity exercises and the campus DEI bureaucracy. These are encouraging signs that the uh, pendulum has started to swing against the reigning DEI orthodoxy in higher education because it never promoted diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's a rigid ideological uniformity. It's a blatant inequity in the treatment of political minorities and the exclusion of points of view that are not popular with the left. Thank you, Jeff Jacoby. The imposition of DEI bureaucracy upon the academy has often come at the expense of academic freedom and the freedom of expression. That's uh, the foundation for individual rights and expression, which is a respected defender of intellectual liberty. Especially pernicious are these DEI administrators who have been responsible for campus abuses repeatedly. And a fresh example of this just happened at Stanford Law School last week when Judge Kyle Duncan of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit was trying to deliver an address. He had been invited to the school by the chapter they have there of the Federalist Society. And about 100 students showed up to disrupt Duncan's speech, repeatedly drowning his words with shouted epithets like, well, I don't know if I can say scumbag and you're a liar, but that's what they said. The title of the judge's talk was The Fifth Circuit in Conversation with the Supreme Court, COVID, Guns, and Twitter. And presumably, he was going to discuss some of his notable decisions on controversial topics. The Fifth Circuit is considered the most conservative of all the appellate courts, and Duncan's orientation is plainly right of center. 
In 2015, for example, he was retained by 15 states to prepare a Supreme Court brief opposing nationwide same-sex marriage. Agree or disagree with his politics, his judicial philosophy should be of interest to any serious law student. After all, as legal blogger David Latt remarked, the opportunity to hear from a sitting federal appellate judge about his court's jurisprudence is why students go to schools like Stanford. But the students who came to Duncan's appearance weren't interested in hearing him, but in silencing him. When the Stanford Fed Society president, an openly gay man, opened the proceedings, he was jeered between sentences. Judge Duncan then took the stage, and from the beginning of his speech, the protesters booed and heckled continuously. For about 10 minutes, the judge tried to give his planned remarks, but the protesters simply yelled over him with exclamations like, You couldn't get into Stanford. You're not welcome here. We hate you. Why do you hate black people? Leave and never come back. We hate the Federalist Society students. F them. They don't belong here either. After a while, Duncan lost his cool and he started calling the students juvenile idiots and condemning the blatant disrespect he was being shown. When it was clear that the abuse would not subside, Duncan asked that a university administrator restore a semblance of order to the room, whereupon Tyrion Steinbeck, Stanford Law's Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, of course, who had been in the room the whole time and done nothing to restrain the disruptors, came to the podium. The judge asked to speak with her privately, but she refused. Then she took out a prepared text and laced into Duncan. Steinbeck told the judge that his work had caused harm and that his speech feels aberrant and literally denies the humanity of people. She accused him of engaging in the absolute disenfranchisement of people's rights. She said she was pained to have to say that you are welcome here in this school to speak and express sympathy for those who oppose free speech on campus. Is your speaking here worth the pain that it has caused, the division it has caused, she demanded of the judge. Rather than rebuke the students whose behavior was so disgraceful, Steinbach applauded them. I look out and I don't ask what is going on here. I look out and say, I'm glad this is going on here. When Steinbach finished, about half the students walked out. One called Duncan scum as she passed him. The judge tried unsuccessfully to resume his presentation when he invited students to engage with him in a Q&A. The heckling resumed. You are all law students. You're supposed to have reasoned debate and hear the other side, not yell at those who disagree. To which, according to a blogger, a protester jeered, you don't believe that we have a right to exist. So we don't believe you have the right to our respect or to speak here. Why are universities increasingly seen not as a home for open debate, but as a gulag of intellectual conformity and the silencing of non-woke ideas? Look no further than Stanford, where an academic official, a dean no less, insults an invited speaker, extols the students shouting him down, and suggests that the school might be better off jettisoning any commitment 
to free expression. One day after the fiasco at the law school, Stanford issued a letter of apology to Duncan, signed by the university president and the head of the law school. What happened was inconsistent with our policies on free speech, they wrote, and we're very sorry about the experience you had while visiting our campus. Without mentioning Steinbeck by name, the letter conceded that staff members who should have enforced university policies instead intervened in inappropriate ways. That's putting it far too mildly. There was no forceful rebuke of the students for their shameful and intolerant behavior. There was no indication that Steinbach, the DEI dean, will face professional consequences. The Stanford Review, which is an independent student newspaper at the California University, had a much stronger take. The university's apology will be completely meaningless unless concrete actions are taken to rid the administration of anti-speech zealots, declared the paper in an editorial headlined, Fire Tieran Steinbeck. It argued that if Stanford's claim to care about free speech is to be taken seriously, it must fire any administrator who actively encourages these unruly actions against free speech. Only as an acronym does DEI stand for diversity, equity, and inclusion. In the fever swamps of academia, it has come to stand for everything that academic inquiry and intellectual freedom shun. The debacle at Stanford is only the latest illustration of just how toxic higher education has become. You see, I believe that. I believe that all of this nonsense is being brought to a head by the insane actions of the left. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is meaningless if only one side gets to speak. It doesn't include anyone with differing opinions. And I find it most disturbing that it's at the most prestigious universities, some of which my own children were students at. My daughter went to Stanford Medical School. She was a Columbia undergrad. My son went to Harvard and then was a law student at Yale. And really, when I look at them, I'm convinced that they got brainwashed at these supposedly great institutions of higher learning. I only wish that I had known that before I forked over the money and they forked over enormous amounts of money in student loans for grad schools because they really got short shrifted. Instead of becoming more open-minded or more embracing of diverse viewpoints, they became ghettoized. They're only allowed to think one way. They're only allowed to hang around with one kind of people. And they are certainly not allowed to entertain any ideas that the majority of the students they're in school with and the professors that are teaching them hold dear. If that had been my experience in higher education, I probably would have dropped out. And I was about as left as anybody could be. But I embraced debate. I was excited by the opportunity. And I debated many, many very competent uh, conservatives over the years. They were so competent, in fact, that they convinced me I was wrong. And I think we should always be open to the possibility that the way we think is not the only way to think and that the way we think might actually be wrong. In this case, the students at Stanford Law School didn't think at all. And the administration barely understood what a 
important moment this was for those students and how it could have challenged them to be better. One of the other things I wanted to talk about that Jeff Jacoby had also talked about recently was corporate welfare and the embargo on Cuba. You know, the dictatorship in Cuba is the oldest and probably the cruelest in the Western Hemisphere. The island's people live under bitter, bitter, bitter oppression. And the regime in Havana reserves its most poisonous attacks for the United States, the nation to which hundreds of thousands of Cubans have fled, often at the risk of their own lives. Yet that never seems to dissuade some U.S. politicians from seeking to reward Cuba's despots with commerce and new wealth. Last week, Senators Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota Roger Marshall and Jerry Moran of Kansas, Chris Murphy of Connecticut, and of course Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts introduced legislation to lift the Cuba trade embargo and make it easier to subsidize Cuba's dictatorship. Their pitch is that the measure would make it easier for U.S. businesses and farmers to trade with Cuba, a market from which America exporters are, well, they've been excluded. By ending the trade embargo with Cuba once and for all, our bipartisan legislation will turn the page on the failed policy of isolation while creating a new export market and generating economic opportunities for American businesses, Klobuchar said in a press statement. Added Moran, it is time to amend our own laws to give U.S. producers fair access to market to consumers in Cuba. Nothing in their bill, the senators insist, would impede the ability of the United States to hold Cuba accountable for its human rights, uh, well, enormous amount of human rights violations. The only thing wrong with that is, well, everything. To take the last point first, we have already sat through this feature and we know how it turns out. It was less than a decade ago that President Barack Obama and Secretary of State John Kerry vigorously set about normalizing relations with Cuba. The U.S. Embassy in Havana and the Cuban Embassy in Washington were reopened. Obama removed Cuba from the State Department list of terror-sponsoring regimes, attended a Major League Baseball game in Havana as the guest of Cuban President Raul Castro lifted most restrictions on travel to Cuba by Americans and dispatched top officials to the island on trade missions. Result? The regime's repression intensified. Beatings and arrests of dissidents soared. There was a crackdown on churches and religious groups. By relaxing restrictions on U.S. trade with and travel to Cuba, Obama's policy made life worse for ordinary Cubans, not better. The reason was straightforward, because the Cuban government owns or controls virtually every major business in the country. Doing more business with Cuba meant putting more wealth into the coffers of the regime. A richer dictatorship became, by definition, a stronger dictatorship. Everybody shares a little bit of disappointment about the direction that the government in Cuba chose to go. But the outcome was entirely predictable.
All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. U.S. farmers and other producers are not barred by the embargo from selling food and other products to Cuba. In 2022, U.S. exports to Cuba totaled $328.5 million, according to the U.S.-Cuba Trade and Economic Council, up from $304 million the year before. Most of those exports were foodstuffs, especially poultry and soybeans. One source quoted by CBS News last year, Yale professor Carlos Ayer, even described the United States as the largest supplier of food to Cuba. What the embargo prevents is not selling to Cuba, but selling to Cuba on credit. American producers are free to export agricultural commodities to Cuba as long as the terms are cash on the barrel head. Exports to Cuba do not qualify for federal credit guarantees, and U.S. Agriculture Department export promotion programs, which are highly lucrative forms of corporate welfare. American agribusiness keeps clamoring for the right to sell more commodities to Cuba on credit terms backed by the federal government, secure in the knowledge that if Cuba fails to pay its bill, some other entity will pick up the tab. The problem is that the communist regime will fail to pay its bills. It is a notorious deadbeat, and U.S. taxpayers will be stuck with the check. A weirdly persistent myth about the U.S. embargo, one repeated over and over and over again, is that if that only it were repealed, Cuba would be inundated by a gush of tourists and consumer imports and democratic ideas from America that would topple Havana's communist walls. The silliness of the claim is evident from the energy with which Havana fulminates against the embargo. Besides, if commerce and tourism had the power to undo the regime, it would have been undone long ago. Millions of tourists from around the world, including hundreds of thousands from America, visit Cuba each year. And the U.S. embargo affects only the United States. It doesn't hamper Cuba from trading with scores of other countries. If the island remains a despotic economic basket case, that is because it is ruled by a communist police state. In 2021, when courageous Cubans by the thousands surged into the streets in the biggest anti-government demonstrations in two decades, they cried, Abajo la dictadura, down with the dictatorship, and Libertad, some waved American flags. Cuba's people know that their misery is the fault of the oppressive regime that for six and a half decades has kept them in chains. 
The time to treat Cuba as a normal trading partner will come when that oppression ends, when political prisoners are freed, when emigrants can leave, when political parties are legalized, and when democratic elections are scheduled. That is what Klobuchar and her colleagues should be focused on, not how to sell more soybeans to Havana's ruling thugs. And finally, on today's No Restraint podcast, I want to talk about the federal government that was forced to pause the Proud Boys trial regarding the January 6th so-called insurrection, and you will never guess why. Special Agent Nicole Miller accidentally revealed that her boss ordered her to destroy 338 items of evidence via chat logs that were leaked. That's bad news for the prosecution, and now it's official. We are living under the very government our founding fathers warned us against. Apparently, Miller not only lied to the defense, but also may have spied on attorney-client communications. Last I checked, these fall under the privileged category. After also being asked to edit out that I was present during a meeting with a confidential informant. I guess this is the kind of higher loyalty, James Comey wrote about. More confirmation here about an FBI agent who lied on the stand and concealed evidence, admitted fabricating evidence and following orders to destroy hundreds of items of evidence. Lack of criminal accountability for FISAgate lives on. Now it's the FBI that is sweating bullets as they now claim some of those messages are very likely classified. Politico explains, as part of her testimony, prosecutors shared with defense lawyers a set of internal FBI messages that Miller had sent and received from colleagues related to the case, a standard procedure of evidence in criminal cases. To compile these exchanges, FBI headquarters sent Miller a spreadsheet of her messages, culled from a computer network classified at the secret level. Miller then reviewed the messages and filtered them to ensure only relevant, unclassified exchanges were included. Miller sent her final list to prosecutors, who then packaged the messages into an Excel spreadsheet that they provided to defense lawyers. But unbeknownst to them, the messages Miller initially filtered out including some that DOJ officials say are likely classified, were left in the final document as hidden rows in the Excel spreadsheet. Defense counsel stumbled upon them and began grilling Miller about them in front of jurors in the case. Overnight, Justice Department attorneys told the defense team they were concerned there had been a spill of classified information on the hidden messages they accessed. And on Thursday, U.S. District Court Judge Tim Kelly paused the trial, already in its third month, to determine how to handle the error. It's the latest hiccup in a seditious conspiracy trial that has been marked by excruciating delays and extended legal disputes. Prosecutors say Proud Boys Chair Enrico Tario and four leaders of the group schemed to prevent the transfer of power from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. The group, according to the Justice Department, split into teams that helped engineer the breach of police lines and ultimately the building itself, 
when one of the defendants, Dominic Pezzola, smashed a Senate wing window with a stolen riot shield. Assistant U.S. Attorney Jocelyn Ballantyne, who was supervising the case for the Justice Department, acknowledged the likely spill of classified information on Thursday morning last week. She raised particular concerns about a message sent to Miller by another agent who works on covert activity and who she said did not work on the Proud Boys case, describing a supervisor's order to destroy 338 items of evidence. That could impact a classified equity, Ballantyne said. I find the timing of Ballantyne's classified claim to be pretty fishy. Just this week, Tucker Carlson unleashed quite a bit of video from the so-called insurrection. But there's one problem. The insurrection part is missing. For example, we all know the story of the QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley, the spear-carrying January 6th rioter whose horned fur hat, bare chest, and face paint made him one of the more recognizable figures in the assault on the Capitol and was sentenced to 41 months in prison. However, Carlson revealed that video captures Chansley's movements in the Capitol that day. He went from room to room, offering up prayers, thanking police for their hard work, while escorted at all times by Capitol Police. The idea that anyone else would face a prison sentence after Carlson's big reveal is preposterous. No wonder the prosecutor had to employ a stall tactic. Their entire case is in shambles. Politico continues, defense lawyers cried foul, though, noting that the government's claims of classified material arrived just as the defense sounded the alarm about the content of some of the inadvertently disclosed messages. While Miller testified Wednesday she had produced about 25 rows of messages, defense lawyers said there were thousands of rows of hidden messages that included contents they contended were directly relevant to their case. Some of the messages appeared to reveal that FBI agents accessed contacts between defendant Zachary Rell and his attorney, which led Miller to tell a colleague she thought Rell would take his case to trial. In another message, an FBI agent tells Miller, you need to go into that CHS report you just put and edit out that I was present. After defense attorneys began to press Miller about the attorney-client messages on Wednesday afternoon, prosecutors objected, and Kelly halted the trial to permit the parties to debate the matter. After hearing arguments Thursday, Kelly ordered defense attorneys to refrain from reviewing or disseminating the messages until the FBI was able to conduct a classification review, a process that Ballantyne said could likely be completed by the end of that day. Telling a group of lawyers not to look at those messages is like telling people not to look at a car crash on the interstate. Worse, it's like telling people not to look at the files on the Hunter Biden laptop. Any attorney worth their salt is definitely viewing those chats before they mysteriously vanish faster than a Clinton accuser. The flare-up comes as prosecutors are nearing the end of their case against the Proud Boys. They've laid out evidence showing that Tario and his allies developed a sense of existential dread about a Biden presidency. 
and quickly embraced Trump's claims of fraud in the days and weeks after his defeat in the 2020 election. As January 6th neared, the group's leaders grew increasingly disillusioned with police, who they accused of insufficiently acting to investigate a man who stabbed several Proud Boys at a December 2020 rally in D.C. And they set up a new chapter dubbed the Ministry of Self-Defense that included men they believed would follow orders. A week before January 6th, Tario received a document from a girlfriend titled 1776 Returns that sketched out a plan to occupy federal buildings in order to derail and delay congressional proceedings to certify the 2020 election. Defense attorneys have contended that the group is little more than a glorified drinking club that had no actual plan to either storm the Capitol or prevent Biden from taking office. Miller's testimony portrayed the group's march through Washington on January 6th as an organized and concerted advance towards the Capitol that pinpointed weaknesses in Capitol Police defenses and exploited them to help facilitate the breach of the Capitol. No matter what you believe about the election and no matter what you believe about the motives or the tactics of the Proud Boys, one thing we can all agree on is of late, the FBI has been infamously doing things that no law enforcement agency should ever do, obfuscating the truth, denying evidence exists, withholding evidence in criminal trials, and then, of course, deleting information that could change the outcome of a trial. I don't know about the rest of you, but when I was on the left, I didn't trust the FBI. And now that I'm on the right, I don't trust the FBI. We need a revamping of law enforcement and the Department of Justice, and we need it now. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.